0: This podcast from Teacher is supported by the Hatchery Schools Learning Community, where you can get all your learning and development in the one place. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Research Files from Teacher Magazine. I'm Rebecca Vukovic. My guest today is Dr. Gary Steger, one of the world's leading experts and advocates for computer programming, robotics, and learning by doing in classrooms. He's also a journalist, teacher educator, consultant, professor, software developer, publisher, school administrator, and presenter at conferences around the world. But I'll have Gary explain to you a little more about his extensive and impressive work early on in the episode. The reason for our interview today is to talk about his 30 years study into laptop use in schools. In fact, in 1990, Gary led the professional development in the world's first laptop school. I asked him about the challenges they faced back then in the implementation of the program, how students engaged with the technology in the early days, but also what he's learned about the way computers are used in schools today. Let's jump in. Dr. Gary Steger, thanks for joining Teacher Magazine.
1: It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: To begin, I'd like to talk a little bit about your professional background, and given you've had a career spanning 30 years or more, and you've done such a range of interesting things, this may just be the most difficult question of the whole interview, <laughs> but nevertheless, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and give a brief overview of your career to date?
1: Well, again, thanks for inviting me, Rebecca. I've been involved in education formally for a very long time. Uh, Since 1982, I've been advocating for learning by doing um, computer programming, robotics, things like that in in classrooms. Um, My goal has always been to help teachers make sense of a world in which wondrous opportunities exist for knowledge construction. Not so much to teach kids things we've always wanted them to know with greater efficiency or efficacy or comprehension, but to create opportunities to learn and do in ways that were unimaginable just a couple of years ago. So I've been fortunate enough to be at the right place at the right time in a number of instances during my career. I created one of the first online postgraduate degree programs for educators back in the 90s. I've been teaching online in some form since the late 80s. I was the principal investigator for Seymour Papert, the father of educational computing's last institutional research project in which we created a high-tech, multi-age, project-based alternative learning environment inside a troubled prison for teenagers. I'm the co-author of a book called Invent to Learn, Making, Tinkering, and Engineering in the Classroom, which was just published in its eighth language and will be out in Chinese soon. Um, And that book has been called The Bible of the Maker Movement in Schools. I started the Constructing Modern Knowledge Educator Institute. I now publish books by creative educators for creative educators and even started a publishing company for arts books. Um, Jazz is one of my... Passion since I was a child, and our fir- the first book we published this year just was named Jazz Book of the Year by the Jazz Journalists Association. That has nothing to do with Teacher Magazine, but it has to do with my eclecticism, and I I I continue to speak at conferences around the world and lead professional development in schools all over the place, who are committed to the idea that we should make school the best seven hours of a kid's life and. And help make the world a better place for kids. And one of the ways which I believe we do that is by recognizing that we have an obligation to introduce children to things they don't yet know they love. And we do that by democratizing experience and, um, and access to expertise. And I've taught everything from preschoolers through the doctoral level as well. So...
0: Wow yeah so clearly you've done so many interesting things and of course we're here today to talk about your 30-year study into laptop computer use in schools. Interestingly it was an Australian school that was the world's first one-to-one laptop school and I understand that you led the professional development at this school. How did you come to be involved in this project?
1: You know it's really important to assert the fact that that all this began in Australia. I'm not Australian, but I'm incredibly proud of the work that was done there by my colleagues and a little bit by me. And I think it's really important to sort of plant the flag and let people know that this wasn't a kind of American-centric event. You know, more than 50 years ago, Seymour Papert and Cynthia Solomon were talking about every kid having a computer, and not only having a computer at a time when most adults had never touched one, but that the kids would have agency over that computer, that they would be programming it themselves and that idea was viewed as as science fiction until a couple people in Australia took it seriously. David Loader, who was principal of Methodist Ladies College in Q. Victoria at the time, in 1989, committed his school to every child having a laptop and using that laptop in a constructionist fashion to program across the curriculum, to bring ideas to life, to mess about with powerful ideas. You know, At, at the most fundamental level, he recognized that computers were increasingly abundant, and they were smaller and cheaper. And it was probably a good idea for for kids to to seize this power. But there was also a a deep educational um, mission associated with that, which we can talk about in some detail. But around the same time, not long after that, the Queensland Department of Education actually, at least publicly expressed, a similar enthusiasm for the idea. And um, I'd always wanted to go to Australia. There was... There was a book I read in third grade, called year three, here in the United States, called, I think it was called This is Australia. It's been recently republished, a picture book, and I'd always wanted to go. And there was an academic conference, the World Conference on Computers and Education in Darling Harbour, Sydney. It was one of the first major events at that facility in 1990. And it was going to be quite a big event. And I wrote a paper, and it was accepted. And I off I flew to Australia, and, and I met these amazing educators who were just doing this wildly crazy thing that I only ever dreamed of, which was kids having their own computer. It was a personal computer and, and they were programming and they were making things and they were learning all sorts of things that no one thought kids were capable of doing. And they were doing it across the curriculum with a cross section of teachers equally enthusiastic about what was happening. And I, my coming from my American centric public school experience and my advocacy for public education, I actually thought that the Queensland piece of this was the part that was going to be more significant, both educationally and historically. I always joke that in 1990, the Queensland Department of Education was publicly stating that by 1991, every kid in Queensland would have a laptop. And and for any number of reasons, that obviously didn't happen. But I met David Loader and the, these folks from Queensland and said, boy, I wish I could see what you were doing in schools. It sounds so exciting. I'd love to visit someday. And 45 minutes later, they said, we've put the money together. When can you return? And I was back a month later. And I don't know, I've been to Australia 75 or 80 times since and completed my my, my doctorate at the University of Melbourne and I barracked for the Richmond Tigers. And um, I've spent a, a significant part of my, my adult life working in Australia. So it was it was really kind of two schools that started it and it was just a dumb accident that I had already been trying to bring to life Seymour Papert's vision of, of kids programming and using the computers as intellectual laboratories and vehicles for self-expression. And David Loder in particular recognized that I could be really useful in helping his staff, helping his faculty develop the capacity to realize the vision and I spent The better part of the next 10 years working in various schools in Australia trying to to help that be possible
0: yeah and you mentioned that there were two schools involved from the very beginning and that's what I'd like to talk a little bit more about now could you share with listeners the story of how it all began with Methodist Ladies College in Melbourne but also Coombaba State Primary School in Queensland
1: like This has been written about in books, and I'm not an expert because it actually predates me by about six months, <laughs> but like I said, in, in sometime around the end of 1989, David Loader, he had read Seymour Papert's book, Mindstorms. He was well-versed in progressive education literature. He was increasingly distressed by the quality of education that was being afforded to students in the school that he led and recognized that things needed to change and... There was this computer revolution that was taking that has having an impact on every other aspect of of human endeavor and surely um, it was worthwhile to invest in, in kid power. There was a there was a woman named Liddy Neville who was who was his muse and and helped him with these ideas and I think was also a bridge to the folks in Queensland who embraced the idea. While MLC committed to doing to doing going one to one in years five to twelve, and then eventually, you know, sprinkling it lower. It, the The Queensland project was was concerned with, I believe, students in year five and six, and and one of the ways that you and I have met was um, me growing concerned that the Kumbaba story had been lost to history and. I've been badgering people for about 10 years to find some of the seminal research documents documenting what happened in Queensland so that that would be on the in the historic record.
0: And of course what you're referring to there, Gary, is the fact that the Australian Council for Educational Research Cunningham Library staff have made these works freely available on the ACER repository. I know that you've published a blog post about this too, where you talk about how excited you are to know that these important documents won't be lost to history. For listeners, I'll include links to all these resources in the transcript of this episode at teachermagazine.com. I'd like to talk about challenges now. Back then, Gary, in 1990... What were some of the key challenges that teachers and school leaders faced in the implementation of the one-to-one laptop program?
1: Well, the, the, the first thing is I think there's probably a distinction that needs to be made. Um, you know, David Loader at MLC was, was being quite bold and courageous and stating publicly that although you trust us with your children and you pay school fees, you should be dissatisfied with what we're doing. And and had a grand vision for what education could and should be. I'm not I, I my suspicion is the Queensland folks because there's a large public bureaucracy were a lot more attracted to the idea that computers touch the future jobs, you know, economic development. But because all the same people were involved, there there was um there was a lot of sort of cross-fertilization of ideas. I'm, I'm always amused by how many Australian school leaders I've met over the last 31 years who introduced themselves as being at the third school to go one-to-one, it, because the first two were pretty well documented, and then it was everybody else. I, and I, before I get to, to answer your question specifically, I, I'd like to say, you know, I, I, very early on we observed that there were kind of three schools that were dealing with one-to-one, there were the pioneers, the folks like Kumbaba and MLC that really wanted to, to reinvent what education could and should be. There was the marketeers. These were the schools that just wanted to announce they bought something. And that gave them a competitive advantage in the marketplace. And I should also mention, there were schools geographically proximate to MLC whose marketing was, we ain't doing this. Or, or if you're teaching kids to be creative, we're going to teach them to use Microsoft Office. And, and I think there was more than a little hint of sexism involved as well, that, you know, this is what girls do, program computers, which is kind of funny on its face. Um, So, so in our, in our, you know, in our, in our um, mixed gender or male schools, we're going to teach them clerical skills for the 19th century. I mean, it's, it's, like I said, it's, it's patently absurd, but, but that was enough to, to, to generate whatever kind of heat and attention they needed. And then the third category of schools was the neighbors. And it was just the fact that once the school down the street did it, it became really difficult for you not to get involved as, as well. And, and the neighbors, just like in real life, have a nasty habit of mucking things up for everyone else. But explicitly to your question, I think one of the challenges was to do this with existing faculty. And what's most extraordinary specifically about what happened at Methodist Ladies College is that within a couple of years, over a thousand children and all of their teachers at some level were, were integrating personal computers, were programming on them, were creating things on them, were manipulating media, and they were doing it across the curriculum. And as my colleague Kevin Richardson, who's now a school principal at Emanuel College in South Australia remarked, it was a really sharp perception on uh, observation on his part. MLC did this with their existing teachers, which which has given me a lot of hope and optimism in all of the work that I've done since about what's actually possible. And if you put pins in a map of where those teachers from MLC went, they became school principals w- with re- remarkable frequency. They started companies. They got they went they got university jobs. Um, a, a, a Sort of statistically significant number of teachers at both Kumbaba and MLC went and got advanced degrees. They dressed differently they viewed their role differently, their relationship with kids, their relationship with knowledge their own their own sense of confidence and competence as educators they 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 sort of grew up before our very eyes um, and that's that 's one of the lessons that I take from the experience that's 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 really significant. And the, the thing that I really find important to say is I don't think the word program was used very much and certainly the term pilot was never used. This was never a pilot. You know, schools engage in pilot projects because the pilot pilot implies a high probability of failure and an escape, you know, cause for when you announce, oh, that didn't work. We're going to go in another direction. There was just a recognition that personal computing was going to and should play an, in, an increasingly large role in the intellectual, creative, social development of children. And why not be the first ones to do it? And And again, this is something that Australia should be enormously proud of. And it's only been in the last year that Steve Costa, the first teacher in the world who put his hand up and said... Yeah, I'll teach your fives or sixes with every kid having a computer and did it for another 30 years, retired. And I've, you know, it, people should know of him and his work and his contributions and the, the joy and skill and expertise and enthusiasm and sense of wonder he brought to the enterprise every day until about a year ago.
0: Yeah, and it's really interesting to hear you talk about the impact that this had on teachers and I'd also now like to talk a little bit about the impact it had on students because in his 2003 book, Never Mind the Laptops, Kids, Computers and the Transformation of Learning, Bob Johnston wrote about the implementation of the laptop program at MLC. I'm going to read a quote to you from the book because I found it really interesting. He said, the teachers were proud of how well the girls cared for their machines, but they were taken aback when a few weeks later, stickers of ponies and butterflies and fairies started to appear on the cases. They needn't have worried the stickers and sometimes the pet names the girls gave their machines." machines, simply meant that the students were comfortable with their computers. They had accepted them as part of their world. I thought that was just such an interesting quote, and I was wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about what this actually says about the way that students are able to accept new technology with enthusiasm.
1: We knew right away that that the, the girls had taken ownership of the machines and by extension, more importantly, owned the knowledge that was constructed within. And, you know, there were parents complaining that all their children do is program, which is, you know, hilarious when you think about the the passive ways in which a parent uses an iPad to shut a toddler up in a, you know, in a pancake parlor. That this was a very different view of computing and what children were capable of. And rather than be hysterical about it, the school sort of embraced this. And it's really important to stress PC stands for something it doesn't stand for anything in schools but it's it, in the rest of the world it stands for personal computer this was the kid's computer and so the school didn't overly regulate what they did with it and I, for 30 years I've had schools fly me all over the world and they say oh great oracle may we ask you an important question and one of the hard-hitting questions I get get posed is what do we do about the kids playing games on the machines? And, and and my answer is always the same. Ask them to stop. But more importantly, the rule was if the kids can play any game they made. So the kids were involved in the mathematical thinking and the computer science and the problem solving and the design and the animation of the things that they created. And they, and they would find themselves lost in those experiences. That, you know, typically when you have an assignment due at school... If you present it to the class, some kid presents something that's completely off the charts, you know, fantastic, probably done by or with a parent. And and then the rest of the kids just sort of sink in their chairs and think to themselves, oh, geez, there goes the the curve. What we saw over and over again in the early laptop schools was kids would say, that's really cool. Uh, and even if they turned the assignment in, they would continue working on what they had made because they wanted to make it bigger they wanted to integrate the new knowledge that they had they had gained from somewhere else um but but this had an impact on on the school as a whole as well when when kids were working on projects that took more than fifteen or forty two and a half minutes of a class period, the teachers at m l c realized that they needed to do something about it, so they they collaborated and came to the administration with the idea of having a like three-hour uninterrupted humanities block so they could teach history, geography, religious studies, language arts all together so kids could work on their integrated projects. And this is fundamentally different from a school principal going to a conference somewhere, hearing about block scheduling and imposing it on people. This was something that the teachers invented because it would serve the children who, who they're employed to benefit. Um, Just like a French teacher who wanted to get involved in using the laptops and heard that the programming language the kids were using was available in French and didn't know where to start. So she asked one of the maths teachers if he would help. And he said, well, I'm busy, leave me alone, but I tell you what I'll do. If the girls want to complete their maths assignments in French instead of English, that's fine with me. And a month later, the French teacher ran into the principal's office hyperventilating because she had actually walked into a maths classroom, which was probably the only time in history that had occurred, and and she saw children speaking French to one another, which is something she hadn't seen in her entire career. And they were not only speaking French to each other, they were speaking French to the computer. And they were getting the computer to to, to realize their their intellectual creative vision via a foreign language. So... You know, things like that happened, as did not just scheduling and not just the the segregation and the siloing of courses, but the furniture changed. When I arrived at, at Methodist Ladies College, you know, it was indistinguishable from a 15th century monastery. There were benches that the children sat behind, wooden benches that went from wall to window. And if a teacher needed to, like, engage with a kid in the third row, they had to shimmy of over or under one of these benches. Well, as soon as there were 20 or 30 kids working on independent or small group collaborative projects, teachers needed to be able to move around. Kids needed to be able to move around. All kinds of physical, you know, new physical spaces with more flexible seating and, and, and you know, room to move started becoming the norm, I mean at first we were just chucking furniture into the corridor, um, but eventually a lot of the the physical plant was redesigned and I should also mention that no one ne- nicholas Negroponte the the founder of the One Laptop per Child initiative said and it, and the founder of the MIT media Lab um he used to say no one no one washes a higher car. We found early on and subsequently when the children own the computer and they're doing meaningful things with it. They don't break the computers. They don't lose the computers. If a school has a high incidence rates of theft, loss, damage to their laptops, I can predict the low-level, tedious, coercive, knuckle-dragging um, assignments that they're ex- expected to, to create on the laptops. At MLC, they were using the laptops to call upon you know, are better angels and to do things that were fantastic and wondrous and fun and interesting and that kids could, kids could fall in love with. And we helped the teachers recognize what the children were learning in this new medium. We'll be
0: back after this quick message from our sponsor. You're listening to a podcast from Teacher Magazine, supported by the Hatchery Schools Learning Community where you can get all your learning and development in the one place. Join us and attend live virtual events, interact with other community users and education industry experts, access on-demand bite-sized topics, in-depth content and more. Sign up now to the school's learning community at the-hatchery.co. And Gary, I've mentioned quite a few times now that it's been 30 years since the program launched. But 30 years on, I'm wondering what have been some of the key changes to take place in schools regarding the way they use laptops?
1: It's gotten worse. I, I often say that if we wanted to make schools better, we'd, we'd find a cure for amnesia. Um, and that's why it's important to have these conversations, why it's important for me to have browbeat ACER into finding some of the original Kumbaba studies and scanning them so we could put them online for other people to see, to recognize that the first doctoral thesis on the one-to-one experience at MLC was published in 1995. One of you know we were we were considered utopians and dreamers or just irresponsible, you know, folks throwing money around or doing these crazy things like putting computers in the hands of kids during the age in which all serious creative and intellectual work is done on computers, until something occurred about 18 months ago, you know, this little thing called the COVID-19 pandemic. And at that point, computers, which were possible to provide to children, started raining down from the skies. And all of a sudden, everyone had a device. And I always loved the use of the term device in schools. You know, device is is a term only used when you're trying to do something on the cheap for other people's children. No one walks into a Harvey Norman or an Apple store and asks, can I have a device, please? You buy computers. And you want to buy computers that allow children to do more things than the curriculum expects or imagines them to be able to do. And it's worth pointing out that in 1990... From nineteen ninety to about nineteen ninety-five, MLC's couple thousand laptops were managed by a nice old lady named Louise, who when your laptop broke on a rare occasion, you went and saw Louise and she patted you on the head and dried your tears and said, It's okay, honey, I'll call Computer Leck and you'll have your computer back tomorrow. And you know, one of the innovations in Australia was, you know, laptops were being repaired like within hours for kids. I mean, the it's, it's not insignificant that the leasing, that the, you know, the, how to buy a computer, how to lease a computer, how to maintain a computer for children was also invented in Australia as, long, as well as the educational vision. Um, so I was a lot more optimistic before the pandemic than I am now. Um, I think if there's any room for optimism, I, I think it's probably unlikely that kids won't have computers from here on out. But I, but I think that, over time, the sort of grand, humane, magical vision of what happened in the early '90s in Australia has 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 largely been forgotten. It bubbles up here and there.
0: I guess that leads well into my next question, Gary, because I want to just touch on a little bit more of your personal feelings, because I want to know about what some of the things that you've personally learned, because. You've looked at this for such a long time. What have been some of those key things that you've learned along the way?
1: I think, I think focus on three things. One is it is possible to change the world. It was extraordinary the level of engagement, of enthusiasm, that, of commitment that we found among most of the teachers who were involved both at Kumbaba and at MLC. Not all, but, but a significant majority and they they revolutionized like i said before everything scheduling curriculum assessment teacher student ratio they they embraced project based learning and started reading the progressive education literature and, and implementing in their own practice they started taking courses they ran we we ran camps for new kids and existing kids at, you know during the during the school holidays we, we took teachers away to experience the kinds of open-ended, project-based, computationally rich learning adventures that we wanted them to be able to create for their students, where we asked them to take off their teacher hat and put on their learner hat. And, and we saw that, that things need not be as they seem and that it could happen even in a school where the idea of one-to-one computing passed a 27-member school board by one vote. It happened in somewhere like Queensland's government in a brief moment of of clarity or insanity, depending on your perspective. I think the, the second idea is that we need to raise our expectations and we need to recognize that teachers are capable and competent, that that they can do great things. There was never any after-school workshop on how to use an iPad. The approach that we took was... If you want to learn to use your computer for report writing, the school would set, let you go to a to a workshop either in their their community education division or at a, at a TAFE. But this wasn't the mission of our of our professional development in the school. The mission of the professional development in the schools was to, to make school a more constructive place in which kids could fall in love with things that they didn't know existed and to become good at something and to develop mastery and to work in an integrated fashion across the curriculum and to create and to debug and to explore and to to test hypotheses. So the emphasis on a of, pers- of the professional development was always on higher standards of, of what teaching could be, what learning could look like in an age where every child had a personal computer. Um, and we left the mechanical stuff to be figured out and you know I remember saying to teachers if you know if you can't figure out this you know report writing thing hire the set hire the 7 year old next door but that's not that's not what we're here for and again if you look at or look around how much professional development today is is dedicated to the latest app the latest clerical tool that this, the administration wants the teachers to use it's all this sort of you know low level stuff and you should recognize that computers still are buggy and annoying and idiosyncratic. And if your first experience with a computer is using it to do something you hate doing like administrative, you know, reporting to the administration, then the chances of that creating exciting new learning opportunities for your students are very low. And that's why, you know, now, Forty years after microcomputers entered classrooms all over the world, we're st- still trying to find ways to beg, bribe, cajole, trick, coerce, threaten teachers to use this stuff. So the goal the goal from the beginning was to revolutionize what happened in the classrooms and more importantly between the ears of the kids and in the relationship between kids and other kids and kids and teachers. So recognizing that teachers are capable and competent was the second really big lesson. The third one is that in, in order to achieve this, you need to keep the rope the rope tight meaning that if you're trying to pull something you let's imagine you have a little red wagon and you have a rope attached to it if the rope is loose there's not very much forward momentum <laughs> there's not much forward progress made and when i work with teachers and when we worked with teachers back then there was this expectation that we'll provide whatever you need to do the impossible but we expect the impossible and and as a result, you know, some teachers fell a little sure, and some exceeded our wildest expectations in, in every way imaginable, even down to things like Rebecca, I remember in 92 or you know, early nineties, maybe 91, 92, 93, the teachers at MLC got tired of queuing up to use a printer. And they, they asked if the school could have vendors come in and show them printers during lunch hour. And there were teachers buying $5,000 laser printers for their homes because they wanted to be able to print without queuing up or fighting over the scarce resource in the school. You know, it's worth noting that the original laptops cost in the neighborhood of 3000 Australian dollars and kids at MLC were told you couldn't come back without one. And the teachers had to spend about 25% of the cost themselves to have some skin in the game and to have some flexibility on what kind of computer they, they wanted. And one of the lessons we learned, I, I, this was, uh, I'll give you a fourth, is that scarcity is a, is a major obstacle to use. If you're still trying to get an extra three minutes at the computer lab that you visit once a fortnight like you were taking an excursion to Sovereign Hill then it's just not going to be worth it for you as a teacher to learn and develop new skills, to think about teaching in new ways. And it's certainly not going to be worth, worth it to girls. I mean, it's worth putting a, a real, putting a really fine point on this. In 1989, a girls' school was the first school in the world to commit to a laptop for every child, and they, they were going to explicitly, explicitly be using that to program the computer. Because we were answering the question that Seymour Papert began asking in 1968, does the computer program the child or the child program the computer? And MLC decided that the child would program the computer. This was a girl's school. Now think about how much money and drama has been invested in, in a state, in, in, your, in your nation, around the world, in the deep concern 30 plus years later about gender inequity. And About bro culture in Silicon Valley, and um, about girls being underrepresented in in the sort of computational sciences. Um, imagine if we had we had taken what what happened in your backyard seriously, um, how that the, the world might be a different place today.
0: Yeah, and Gary, I've so enjoyed listening to your stories and your insights. But I'm wondering for teachers and school leaders listening to today's podcast. Where can they learn more about your work in this area? Do you have any resources that we can direct them to?
1: I'll I'll give you a few URLs and I'll I'll do a better job of making some of the laptop stuff specifically findable. But if you go to professorgarystager.com or constructingmodernknowledge.com or my blog at stager.tv, you'll find a lot of information and as well as how to contact me. And I've not only shared the ACER documents on my my blog, at stager.tv, um, but also the book that MLC published in 1993 that was collecting the stories of the teachers who were doing the work. And, and that was given to the thousands of teachers who visited over a few-year period who wanted to learn about the, what was happening in their classrooms. And they, they felt it was incumbent upon them to welcome visitors in a controlled fashion, and to give them something that they could hold on to. And that too would have been lost to history had I not kind of MacGyvered a copy of it and, and put it on the web so people could see that, that what was good is good and that we, we've done great things in classrooms for kids and we can certainly do them again.
0: Yeah, and to all those resources you've mentioned just then, I will include hyperlinks to all of them in the transcript of this podcast. But for now, Dr. Gary Stegeth, it's been so lovely chatting with you. Thanks for sharing your work with Teacher Magazine.
1: It's an honor. I hope to be in Australia as soon as all this craziness is over.
0: That's all for this episode. To stay up to date with episodes in our Research Files series, be sure to subscribe to our podcast channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or SoundCloud so you can be notified of any new episodes. And while you're there, we'd love for you to rate and review us in your podcast app. This podcast from Teacher is supported by the Hatchery Schools Learning Community, where you can get all your learning and development in the one place.